0: Well, good morning. I, uh, God, wasn't that rich time in worship this morning? So, so good. I'm just so grateful for Brian. And, um, yeah, amen. I just love the intention with which he prepares his heart for what we will do together on Sunday morning. I know we sit down and we look at our passage together, we think through What God is speaking through his word and we uh, work diligent. Actually, he works diligently to ensure that what we sing uh, aligns with that truth. And I just think it just drives the truth so deep inside our heart to be so intentional in how he leads and guides us in worship. So, Brian, thank you. So, so grateful for you, my friend. Um, But as he mentioned, as the songs indicated, our passage deals with suffering, (laughs) And suffering, to be honest, is not something we like to talk about, is it? Um, In fact, we want to spend more time trying to avoid it than actually trying to discuss it. And yet, if we take an honest look at Scripture, it tells us that suffering is actually a requirement of the Christian life. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it'd love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness, then so will we. That's why uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my all-time favorite um, heroes of the faith, embraced this truth, and he said that suffering is a badge of true discipleship. He goes on and, and says that it means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising to see that Christians are called upon to suffer because we as servants Of the suffering Christ are not greater than our master, are we? So when Peter writes to his audience, which again are in the midst of suffering, they are enduring persecution. He's not giving them strategies on how to avoid difficulty. In fact, one might argue that his admonitions could potentially make things worse. Submitting to corrupt government? Enduring harsh treatment, doing good to those who do harm, that's not exactly the path of least resistance, is it? But faithfulness in the midst of suffering is the most powerful witness the world has ever known. It is a testimony that transforms both those who see as well as the one who suffers. Because it portrays the the self-sacrificing love of our Savior, and it draws us deeper into that experience of that love as well. And Peter, a a man well acquainted with suffering in his lifetime, will speak from his own experience. He, He will teach us to be prepared so that we're not surprised by the presence of suffering in our lives. And he will point us to the life of Christ so that we can look to him and learn from his example. He'll urge us to entrust ourselves to God, relying on his strength, believing in his promises. Because when we learn to exalt the supremacy of Christ in our lives, when we glorify God and cling to the everlasting hope of our salvation, our worship, becomes an antidote to our fear. Our bold confidence in Christ is what allows us to rise above the weight of our suffering with a confident assurance of his faithful provision. That's at the heart of what we'll look at together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to your word, um, we want to do so with humble hearts. We also want to recognize as we enter into the subject of suffering that, as Brian pointed out, it's a subject that every person in this room at varying levels are acquainted with. In fact, some even experiencing deeply even this morning. And so, Lord, we just ask that the truth of your word that was intended to bring encouragement, and strength to the audience of sufferers would speak to this audience as well. That your spirit would dig deep into our hearts, allowing us to find hope in the midst of struggle. Strength in the midst of weakness. Goodness in the midst of difficulty. Lord, would you use your word to speak powerfully to our hearts through the power of your spirit, and to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in the saving name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 13. I'd love for you to read along with me if you would would like to do that. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter continues, and he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous? for what is good. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear for uh, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. I think it's interesting, if you're like me, anytime you read Scripture, you often encounter things going, huh, that's an interesting thing. I had that when I read this first verse. When it says in verse 13... Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And I kind of put myself into the shoes of the audience who was hearing this, who, like we already said, were doing uh, in the midst of persecution. And from their perspective, they may be thinking, Who is there to harm me? Well, everyone. Corrupt government? Harsh masters? Disobedient spouses? It probably feels like everyone intends to do harm. And so Peter reminds them, don't be frightened. Don't don't be intimidated. Because remember, you serve the ever-present, all-powerful God of the universe who has the power to take what others intend for evil and use it for good. So worship the living God as an antidote to your fear. Because God is bigger than any problem that you and I will ever face in this life. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this. He says, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, and threaten us. He says these three things have one thing in common. They all see people as bigger, or that is more powerful and significant than God. And that fear gives them the right to tell us what to feel, think, and do. When people are big, God is small. Which is why Peter tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in your life. Let the voice of your Savior speak louder than any other voice that you hear. Rely on His approval. Trust in His acceptance. Believe in His promises. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And I want you to remember this is written by a man who failed to keep that commitment three times. He had the opportunity to boldly proclaim his faith in Christ. And three times, he denied ever even knowing him. And I think what we see in this passage actually speaks to what he learned out of that experience. Let me remind you of what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 26 when he says, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. You see, Peter and all the disciples, for that matter, were overconfident and unprepared. They were relying on their own strength while ignoring the presence of fear and intimidation. It's like the little boy who tells his older brother, I'm not afraid to touch that electric fence. (laughs) Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's just hoping that his confidence will overcome his cowardice, right? But that's because our own strength gives us a false sense of security. That's why Peter tells his audience, look to Jesus. Be prepared to face fear with a hope-filled assurance. Trusting in God's promises instead of relying on your own strength. It's a humble confidence that that looks beyond our own abilities. Because if we look to ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we have plenty to fear and doubt, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But if we look to God, oh man, that's where we find the source of our strength seeing beyond the the difficulty of our circumstances and trusting in the strength of our Savior, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Him. See, our clear conscience is what gives us a humble confidence, choosing to, to do the right thing for the right reasons, even if that means suffering for the sake of doing good. It's part of our allegiance to the suffering Christ because did he not do the very same thing? Let's look at how Peter continues in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. In my preparation this week, I ran across a quote from Martin Luther, who after reading this passage says, This is the most obscure thing written in the New Testament, and I have no idea what it means. (laughs) I thought, Oh, good, I feel better, because I don't either. But but here's what I've learned as I have looked at other passages like this that, that are so difficult to understand when we see them up close. Because sometimes we kind of need to pull back the lens and look at a bigger picture for things to make sense. It's kind of like, I used to love these, in I think it was the Highlights magazine that you would see in the doctor's office, right? And they always had these zoomed in photos. You remember these? Where you had to try to guess what they were, but you were looking at them like a hundred times zoomed up, okay? I, I was intrigued by those, but the reality is there was an answer key on the back that would pull back the lens so that you could see what it actually was. And so What you would be looking at would maybe look like a well-manicured lawn with a path going through it, but when they zoomed out, it was actually a tennis ball, right? Because it helps to pull back the lens and see the big picture to get some better perspective. So that's what I want us to do with our passage this morning, and and be reminded as we pull back the lens that, that Peter is writing to encourage people who are in the midst of suffering and persecution. He's not ignoring the reality of their suffering. He's just helping them find joy in the midst of their pain. And he began by encouraging them as we started our passage this morning, be prepared. Realize that suffering is a requirement of the Christian life. It comes as part of our allegiance to the suffering Christ. But that doesn't mean that life has to be miserable. Because from a biblical perspective, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. In fact, God can take what others intend for evil and use it for good. We have hope even in the midst of our heartache. And so we can be zealous for what is right, even in a world that has gone wrong. Living in victory instead of being a victim of our circumstances, because our union with Christ is ultimately the source of our hope, which I believe, if we were to pull back the lens, is the very central message of our passage this morning. As he goes on to describe there in verse 18, right, that that Christ died for our sins once for all. What the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, he, speaking of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for all sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The just for the unjust, so that we could be reconciled to God. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, bearing a punishment that we deserve so that we might receive a gift that we could never earn. That was Paul's point when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, here it is, it is a gift of God not as a result of works, which means none of us can boast. Peter says Jesus was put to death in the flesh. In other words, he suffered and died for our sins. Real suffering, real death, but he was made alive in the spirit, conquering the power of sin and death, rising above fleshly limitations. And what is true for him is also true for us. Ephesians chapter two, verse four says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved, loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, here it is, made us alive, don't miss this, together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ. Do you you see the emphasis of our union with Christ? Accomplished for us. See, what he accomplished is our ultimate source of confidence. And so when it says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, we need to know that, that Peter's not changing the subject here. He's actually validating his point by emphasizing the scope and magnitude of Christ's victory at the cross. Because I think these spirits that are now in prison are actually demonic forces. We see that all throughout Scripture. For example, Jude, chapter six, verse six, says, "An angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, He has kept in eternal bonds, in prison." under darkness, for the judgment of that great day. We can look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, which says, And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit. Even Peter writes about this in his second letter when he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. which which if you look at that passage in 2 Peter, it sounds a whole lot like what we read this morning in 1 Peter. And I believe it's telling us that we live vicariously through the victory of Jesus Christ, who announced his triumph over evil to the demonic forces now in prison. In other words, evil has been conquered, and the righteous will be vindicated. Now, we don't like to talk about demonic forces. We don't like to think about this spiritual world that exists out there, but it's real, people, okay? It's real and it's active. But what he's trying to tell us is that there is nothing that exists in that world that you and I should fear or be intimidated by because we stand victorious with Jesus Christ who announced his victory over that domain and says that you are under my authority. Like Noah and his family, we are saved from the day of God's judgment. God's people will not endure God's wrath. It was placed upon our Savior at the cross. We stand victorious with Christ both now and for eternity. And our suffering will be exchanged for an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Just listen to how Paul describes this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When he talks about this union, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive, there it is, together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. There it is. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Here's the key. We stand triumphant with Christ because we share in Christ's victory. That's the key. Don't miss that. We endure the difficulties of this life because we know how the story ends. Yes, we suffer, but we are not defeated by our suffering. We are not a victim of our circumstances. We have been raised with Christ. We are empowered by his spirit and we live like Jesus beyond the limits of our flesh because we are empowered by his spirit which stands victorious over everything in heaven and on earth. Look at how he continues in verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So once again, this is not a new thought. Again, a challenging passage, but same idea. So let's not lose that big picture perspective. Peter keeps the connection by beginning with the words corresponding to that. So this is a parallel thought to the previous verse. More specifically, the deliverance of Noah and his family from the judgment of the flood. Because the God who delivered Noah and his family is the same God who delivers us, you and I. And this deliverance is what is symbolized in our baptism, which again, represents our union with Christ. That's the big picture point. Baptism is a picture of having been buried with Christ in his death and then raised to walk in the newness of life through his resurrection. And to prevent any misunderstanding, notice what Peter says. He says, but this is not just the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, baptism is not what purifies your life. Instead, it is where you pledge your life to be set apart to God. Let me ask you, did the the ark save Noah and his family from the flood? No, the ark didn't save Noah and his family. God saved Noah and his family. Baptism doesn't save you from God's judgment. Christ saves you from God's judgment. And your baptism represents your union with him. See, in good conscience, we seek to faithfully devote our lives to follow Christ. Old things have gone. Behold, new things have come. Peter seems to be combining these metaphors to help magnify his point because Christians have been brought through the destruction of the flood of destruction. We've been brought through the the waters of death and we are in fact secure in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that is outside of his sovereign control and dominion. That's why he told his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heavens and on earth. And it is by this authority that you and I fulfill our calling as ambassadors of Christ. What Peter's already told us, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we don't have to be defeated by our suffering. Nor do we need to be surprised by it. Like Peter says in the beginning, suffering is an expected part of the Christian life. Because if Jesus faced opposition and difficulty, then so will we. As Bonhoeffer said, we made an allegiance to a suffering Christ. Therefore, it should be no surprise that Christians are called to suffer. It's a badge of discipleship. And I actually believe this is, this is a critical factor for our endurance because here's why. If our goal is to avoid suffering at all costs, if we're striving for, for comfort and control in our life, then suffering will be an unwelcome intruder that will cause us to be miserable and feel defeated constantly. This is actually a very significant part in my ongoing battle with anxiety. Because my goal for many years was to avoid it at all costs. To manage my life in a way that minimized stress in every possible way. And not only was it exhausting, it was completely impossible. I've actually found more freedom in acknowledging the struggle with anxiety. And now when it comes, I can say to myself, I see you. I see you. And I know what you want to do. But you no longer have the right to control me. Because even though I may still struggle, I'm confident that God will carry me through. I can tell my anxiety with utmost confidence, you will not win. I found that being expected and prepared is a much better approach than striving for comfort and control. And I think that's part of what Peter's trying to tell us this morning. Because we don't have to be defeated by our suffering. It can actually be used to draw us more deeply into our love for Christ. Because you didn't hear me say, I no longer struggle with anxiety, that it's gone away and, and it's, uh, it's past history. I didn't say that, did I? It's a present reality in my life, but it no longer controls me. That's the difference. And I think that's what Peter's trying to tell his audience. He's not trying to give them some pie-in-the-sky idea that somehow if they do the right thing, then suffering will go away. He's saying, look, if you do the right thing, then suffering will come. But you don't have to be defeated by it. Which was Peter's second point. Look to Jesus and draw near to him. In fact, the deeper the pain we encounter, the more we should pursue our Savior. There is nothing else we can do that will satisfy what our soul most deeply needs. Hear me here. We need Jesus. That's where we need to put our focus. We need to know that he is present even in the midst of our pain. We should run to him in confidence, not hide from him in fear. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 34, Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, even the Old Testament agrees. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Our suffering is never meaningless. God is always at work, nor is our suffering permanent. Because the Lord will deliver us from its defeat. We will be vindicated, and we will stand victorious with him. We will see a victory because the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. So when we encounter seasons of suffering, instead of focusing on the difficulty of the situation, we need to focus on the glory of our God, knowing that a heart filled with worship is an antidote to our fears. We stand triumphant with Christ and we cling deeply to the hope of our salvation, knowing that this is the only time, think about this, this is the only time in our existence when we have the privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Because when we are with him, it goes away for eternity. This is the only time when we stand in a privileged position to suffer for the sake of righteousness. So that we may exalt the supremacy of Christ in our lives. That is the hope that is in us. Rising above the weight of our suffering with a confident assurance in his faithful provision. Since Christ is one, we need to know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot lose. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity with which you confront the realities of life in a broken world, which is filled with suffering. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Because oftentimes, doing the right thing will cause hard things to come. But we don't have to be defeated by that suffering. You have announced your victory over all of creation, including the spiritual realm. Because you stand in complete authority, and we belong to you. And where you have had victory through the cross and the power of the resurrection, that same victory has been applied to our lives. And so we stand victorious with you. You are our Savior, and we trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. So I want you to make sure you don't miss a really important part in our point in our passage this morning, and and that is that our victory is not in the absence of suffering. It is in the presence of suffering. It didn't tell us that if you do good things, then you're promised good things will happen and life will get easier. It actually tells us just the opposite, doesn't it? It says the righteous will suffer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But we don't have to be defeated by our circumstances, and we can even look at the struggles that you and I face in life. And and boy, I want you to know, I'm try. I try to be so sensitive as I share stories from my life because I don't want to communicate anything that would suggest to anyone that I once had a struggle that I don't know, no longer have anymore. In fact, I'm telling you just the opposite. <laughs> It is still a present reality in my life, but it no longer controls me. And that's what I want you to experience through things like we see in our passage this morning. That even in the midst of your struggles and difficulties in life, you don't have to be defeated by them because you stand victorious with Jesus Christ. And his victory becomes yours. And we can rise above our circumstances and we can cling to a hope, even if that's all we do. That's a win. That's a win. So I pray that that's the only thing you hear this week, that as you go along, if you can just cling to the hope, you won. Because he's going to hang on to you. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this sweet family that we can share real life together. I pray that we can encourage each other and strengthen each other, even in the midst of struggles, knowing that we are not defeated by it when we stand victorious with Christ. Lord, help us to... Uh, live in a way that we see freedom and find hope even in the midst of some of the darkest, most difficult seasons of our life. Because we look to you and we trust that you have secured us, that we are held tight by your presence and our hope cannot be taken away. Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.